Let me invite your attention now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And Now, let me read you a, a, a portion of God's Word that even, even if you're not in any way a student of this book, I bet you've heard this story. I bet you've heard of it before. Promise. Here we go. Starts at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up uh, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? <clears throat> and he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, <clears throat> the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, I, I have a confession. In 38 years of preaching, I have never preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan, at least to my knowledge. And, and I, I started to skip it this time in, in this series on parables. I started to skip it. Um, but I thought if I didn't include it, you, you would have wondered why I didn't include it. And, and very honestly, most people think it's a parable, and, and so do I. But, but Jesus never says it's a parable, but most people believe it is a parable. Um, <clears throat> but the reasons that I've been so reluctant uh, to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan are two, two reasons that I've avoided it. One of the reasons is um, there are very few things that expose me as the selfish slob that I am, like this parable does. The other reason that I, I've avoided it is because there are certain religious groups who, um, who have turned it into a lesson on human philanthropy, kind of a, um, a, a social gospel 
uh, if you will, as if, as if the path to salvation um, is, is helping the suffering and um, giving to the poor. Now, guys, let, let me be abundantly clear, it, at least I hope. Giving to the poor and relieving the suffering um, is, are, are both important and even necessary actions on the part of Christians. However, the gospel does not consist of human acts, however noble those acts may be. Gang, um, doing these things, um, relieving suffering and uh, giving to the poor, as, as important as those things are, done apart from Christ will never save you. To listen to some, you would think that the, the gospel message has to do with philanthropy, and it does not. But that is not to say that these things are not important and expected of us as people who belong to Jesus Christ. As a result of our belonging to him, these are matters which should be very important to us as we are involved in relieving suffering and and, um, giving to the poor. Now, guys, I I hope that's enough. Um, With those boundaries in mind, uh, I I hope we can take a look at the parable and, and prosper therefrom. So, the first thing that I want you to see about this parable is the train wreck. The, the thing that I'm calling a train wreck is the, is the conversation, the, the colloquy, the, uh, the, uh, the dialogue that uh, um, breaks out between Jesus and, and a lawyer, which goes all the way back to verse 25, with the lawyer approaching Jesus and asking him a question. You know, teacher, what shall I do about eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, guys, first of all, don't think of lawyers in the same way that we have lawyers today. I mean, uh, this is no... uh, A lawyer in the New Testament was someone who was an expert in the law. That is the Torah. Uh, The first five books of the Bible. Moses, the Pentateuch, that thing. It was the specific object of their study. And consequently, they were considered experts in all matters religious. And um, whether or not this, this, um, this lawyer is trying to trap Jesus or trick him, um, which, which happens elsewhere in the New Testament, it, it's kind of hard to say from this text. You do see the word that he brings, he wanted to test Jesus. Um, but if, if he wasn't trying to trap him, uh, at least he would have, would have had the motive to do so. But my point is, whatever his motive... His question is superb. Teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, his question contains a couple of words, do and inherit, that I I think suggest that he's a bit confused. But at least he's asking the question. Are you? Are you concerned about this matter of eternal life? Has the question crossed your mind? You know, yes, he may be confused, but he's asking. 
are you asking? You know, confusion's one thing. Indifference is an altogether different thing. If this whole subject doesn't matter to you a, a whit, then we have another issue. Confusion we can address. Indifference. Indifference will damn you. But Jesus answers his question in, in verse 26 with another question. He says, in essence, um, you're the expert here. Uh, I mean, you should know all about these matters. H- how do you see it? And, um, and then the, the, the conversation, the dialogue goes on with the, with, the, with the lawyer responding to Jesus in verse 27. And he says this, well, this is how I understand it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a wonderful answer. He answers correctly. Jesus says he does. Um, he answers his own question by using words that are, have been come to known as the great commandment, which are really drawn from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. But he answers, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says to him in this continuing conversation, okay, you do that, and you'll live. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you do know, don't you, that if you do that, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and, your neighbor, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, you'll be saved. You don't need a Savior. The problem with that is this. No one, not one of us, none of us, has ever lived that way for 30 seconds in our entire lives. You haven't lived 30 seconds loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That said, we come to verse 28, which is devastating. Devastating to the attorney, to the lawyer, because the, the implication is that the lawyer had not lived this way either. And yet, the lawyer had the right answer. And, and you know, guys, he illustrates a very widespread malady. And that malady is this, that you know things, but they've never translated and made you new, made you different. What he, what he illustrates is a, is a life that divorces knowledge from life. It's, it's like the book of James says that they, to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving themselves. Well, here's a guy who's got a whole lot of information at his, exposure, at his, at his disposal, but it has never changed him. Did you get that? He's got, an, uh, he's got a head that's filled with information, but it has never changed him. He's stuffed full of information, but that's all he's got. He's got right answers. But he does not have a changed heart. 
You know, the final piece in this exchange, this colloquy, is, um, is the act of a desperate man. Who is my neighbor then? This is a, this is a lawyer looking for a loophole. I- anything to dodge this undeniable bullet that has his name on it. Something, something to take the pressure off him, to clear himself. Well, then, I understand what you're saying there, Jesus. Yes, yes, that's very, that's very interesting. Then, could you, could you possibly tell me then, um, uh, uh, who is my neighbor? And then, of course, comes the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the parable of the Good Samaritan comes on the heels of this dialogue, this train wreck of this exchange and discussion between the lawyer and Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, the the train wreck in this passage is the lawyer, not the beat-up guy in the parable. He's imaginary. The one whose life just blew up is the lawyer. He just got exposed as a pretender, as a phony. And you know what the chief characteristic of a phony is? He has a lot of information, but it's never changed him. He knows things, but that's all he's got. And so then Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan that we all know about. But adding the parable into this mix just makes, just makes the whole situation worse for this attorney, this lawyer. The parable does nothing but expose him more. By the way, I, I wanted to tell you this. This road on which this, the scene of the crime, that's not an imaginary road. I've been on that road. <laughs> that's, uh, in 1997, the first time I ever went to Israel, um, we took the road from Jericho that went to Jerusalem. And that road was so scary, it was so treacherous, um, because tour buses were going off the side into the ravine um, it was so scary that a year or so after we were on it, uh, on our tour bus, a bus did go down the side. Everybody was killed, and the government of Israel shut down that road. I, I do have to tell you that when I was on that road, um, I embarrassed you and me. <laughs> it, was, it was terrifying. But anyway, that road is not used anymore. But that's the, that's the road that Jesus has in mind, which is the scene of this crime. And so this guy is on that road, and all of a sudden, people jump out of the bushes, and they beat him, they rob him, and he's leaving him half dead. But don't worry, he's in great shape. Why? I mean, uh, I mean, how could you be this lucky? Because coincidentally, a priest and an assistant priest are just around the corner, and they're coming right towards him. And you know, a priest, why, he is the example and the model of everything humane. 
Everything merciful, everything godlike. Why? It was his calling. It was his vocation to be merciful. Why? He, he, he shared his race. He shared his religion, his nationality, his speech. Why? This guy is in great shape. Don't worry. But unbelievably, both of them pass him by and leave him to die. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us. <clears throat> maybe, maybe they're, maybe they're just. They're just in a hurry because, you know, you don't, want to be re- you don't want to be late for your religious work. Maybe they're worried about being, uh, 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 touching a, a dead body that would render them ceremonially unclean. Maybe that's it. Or maybe, maybe they're thinking, oh, no, the robbers might still be in the neighborhood and then we might get robbed too. Or maybe... Maybe the reason that they walked on by is just raw selfishness. Because, you know, if I stop, (laughs) I mean, it's going to cost me some time and money. Two things that I value very highly. And not only that, I'm determined to stay rich, even at the expense of the poor, or even if they die. Too bad. Surely that's not me, is it? Surely that's not us, is it? You know, guys, the the world is broken and bubbling over with desperate people. You want some examples? They're easy to find. Um... Red where there's a billion people who are now dying of starvation. That a child dies every 15 seconds of, 15 seconds uh, of starvation. <laughs> I heard, I read elsewhere that another billion people, billion with a B, uh, a billion people do not have clean water to drink. And the only source of water is fetid and far away. And so um, by drinking it, they're ingesting um, dehydrating diarrhea and that 6,000 people a day die of waterborne illnesses. Oh, but Dr. Young, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, that's over there. Okay, point made. Then tell me, what about our own city? Are are you involved in any way in reducing the suffering of this city? You know, guys, this this is where preaching gets so tricky. Because surely you don't think I am suggesting that I am above 
such selfishness, do you? Because I'm not. This kind of selfishness is so deeply rooted in us that it, um, it acts like a poison to the soul. It robs us of opportunities of changing the, the world. It, um, it's a selfishness that produces a lifestyle that nobody thinks is beautiful. We all look at it in others and we think, Bleh! It's a selfishness that so poisons us that we find some kind of justification to walk right on by. But don't worry, guys. The, the parable says there's um, that State Farm is there. <laughs> the good neighbor. He showed up. A Samaritan. A good Samaritan does show up, and unbelievably, he stops. But not only does he stop, he puts him on his animal, takes him to an inn, forks out some money, um, and then tells the innkeeper that, don't worry, if you spend more than that, I'll come back and I'll pay what else is, is needed. Now, gang, uh, I, I have said before that Jesus was a master storyteller, but this is a piece of genius. Do you know how much Samaritans and Jews hated each other? Do you know the enmity between those two groups of people? Do you know how long they had been enemies? For Jesus to tell a story to a group of Jews and tell them that they should be more like Samaritans? <laughs> that was repulsive. That was scandalous. That was vile. You telling us to be more like them? I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, one of the storylines, maybe one of the minor storylines, but one of the storylines of this parable has to do with racial reconciliation. Gang, grace radically redefines the boundaries of community. One of the things that grace is supposed to do is rid us of all of our, our prejudices. Guys, when the world sees us pouring ourselves out for the needs of people, particularly people different from us, then they'll listen to what we have to say. Otherwise, they just view us as another power play. It's trying to gather a whole lot of people under our same roof so that we can all be alike. Guys, the real good news of the parable is that there is a good Samaritan. But it's not this guy. The real good Samaritan is Jesus Christ. Um, he was despised. <laughs> Boy, was he. Just like the Samaritan. He came into enemy territory. 
Um, the Samaritan only risked his life. Jesus lost his. And then Jesus came to rescue people that didn't like him either. He came because the priest and the Levite didn't. And they couldn't because law can't rescue anybody. But love can. And love did. You remember that love thing? That was the thing that the lawyer said he knew so much about. But it was nothing more than a bunch of a phony talk. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, this parable makes us all so uncomfortable. Is that all we've got? Is a bunch of phony talk. Guys, love gives. It gives money. It gives time. It gives forgiveness. And for us to love like this is not in us. Except through the sovereign work of grace. But I can tell you this. If you want to know whether that sovereign work of grace has taken place in you, I'll give you one small suggestion. There's, one, there's a couple of places that you could look. You could look at your checkbook. And you could look at your schedule. Guys, grace is the, is, is, it's, it's mainly lived out in little ways. It's, it's, you see it in the daily decisions that we make and in the, in the values that we profess and the priorities that we set. You, you, you see it in the kinds of things that we fight for and the kinds of things that we concede. You see it in the way that we treat our friends and the way that we treat our enemies. Occasionally, grace is tested in more dramatic ways. When, when everything in me rises up to, to, to make me want to respond in a certain way to a, to a set of provocations, and then something prevents me from doing so. It's... Um, it's grace, ladies and gentlemen, that makes me want to bridle my anger, to um, forego revenge, to stop living a life that looks out for number one. It, it makes me long for a lifestyle that is not ever again so, so self-orbiting, so money-crazed, and so thing-driven. 
Folks, in, the, in both the minute and the grandiose, the, the small and the large, God's grace has always treated us better than we deserved. And it has always been the thing that sets God's people apart from the rest of the world. You know, I think I've told you this story before. It's about C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis was years ago was attending a, um, uh, a a conference on comparative world religions, and so they were discussing at one of their sessions about the unique contribution of Christianity to world religions. And so one conferee suggested that it was uh, the incarnation, and somebody said, "No, no, no. Other religions have an incarnating God." And then somebody said, "No, no. It's the resurrection that's unique." And somebody said, "No, no, no. Other other religions have accounts of their gods coming back to life." About that time, C.S. Lewis walked in the room, and he turned to a friend, and he said, um, what's all the ruckus about? And he says, well, they're discussing the unique contribution of Christianity to, to the world religions. And C.S. Lewis said, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's that, that thing that makes me this new person such that people begin to wonder why I behave the way I behave and why I spend my money the way that I do and why I spend my time in things meaningful instead of things trivial. Guys, of course, the preeminent preeminent example of grace is Jesus Christ. What is it that made him behave the way that he behaved? Grace. What is it that, that prompted him to do the things that he did? Grace. What is it that made him die for people who didn't like him? Grace. What is it that made him love people as wicked as I am? Grace. What is it that makes him stick with me when I so frequently disappoint him? Grace. Is there not something about me that attracted him to me? No, just the opposite. He did it all. Because of grace. So, in the light of that grace, I live differently. I behave altogether differently. In the light of this grace, I refuse.
think about that. Our Father, forgive us. Nobody is more selfish in this room than I am. And yet, in the small and in the great, might might the little taste of grace that I possess make me a man that is inexplicable to the world. Father, would you do that throughout the community of believers here at Grace of Anne? That we're eager to give so that the needs of the poor can be met and that the level of suffering in this city and world can be reduced. Father, if All we've got is phony talk. Would you show us? Would you show us right now that all we've got is a head full of information and a life that is chasing after other gods? Would you show us, Lord, so that we might this day stop that pursuit and spend the rest of our lives saying thank you to a God who has gone to extremes to save folks like us. We ask all of this, of course, in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord.